0: This is episode 61 of the Angry Tech News podcast for Tuesday, May 30th, 2023. This is the Angry Tech News podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the Angry Programmer with a mic, Brian Benrose. Now, some people might feel the urge to complain that the live recording of Angry Tech News is a half hour later than usual. I could offer you any number of explanations. I could tell you that there's just so much news I couldn't choose only four stories. I could tell you that my cat stole all of my crypto keys. I could tell you that I got really drunk last night and didn't appreciate being woken up at 6.15 a.m. by a goddamn woodpecker trying to pound holes in the roof of my house. I could offer you those explanations, but I won't. You're just going to have to wonder why I chose to record a half hour late. To be honest, you're lucky you're getting a live show at all. The real product is the pre recorded show. What are you people even asking for? Don't you have anything better to do at midday on a Tuesday anyway? Anyway, as you will see, I continue my pledge to bring you only the best of AI news on Angry Tech News. To that end, there isn't any AI news today. You're welcome. (laughs) from the new ways to hack department. First off, I want to talk to you about a new brute force attack against the fingerprint sensors on several models of smartphones. It's my show, so I get to decide what I want what to talk about and therefore that's what I'm going to talk about. The attack here is called brute print. It's developed by researchers at Tencent and uh I'm going to mess this up. Z- Zhejiang University in Hangzhou, Hangzhou, China. I'm I'm not Chinese. Would apologize, but no. Anyway, uh, the attack is possible by anybody who has physical access to your phone. For example, if they swiped off the, the, your phone off the counter while you were busy adding sprinkles to your Max Caff triple Vivaldi sugar bomb with extra foam, seven shots of syrup, and extra whip on the side for good measure. That kind of sugar high would make me lose track of my phone. Once that attacker gets home with your phone, they can break through the fingerprint authentication within a matter of hours using this technique. So, it's the fingerprint sensor. They say that everyone's fingerprint is unique, and that's true pretty much all the way down to the cellular level. I mean, if nothing else, your DNA. The problem with using that for authentication is that on the cellular level, even your fingerprint changes as cells grow and die off. Phone fingerprint sensors usually aren't sensitive enough to pick up day-to-day changes like this, but they do add up over time. In addition, your skin is constantly producing an oily residue called sebum, if you want to get technical, that plays hell with optics. You're leaving some of that goo on the sensor every time you swipe, which also reduces the accuracy of the sensor. For both of these reasons, fingerprint sensors have a fudge factor built in called the false acceptance rate, a variable that informs the sensor when a fingerprint is close enough to the one stored to treat it uh, close enough to treat it as the same person and unlock the phone. The false acceptance rate or FAR is adaptive. If the reader detects that several attempts that are really close, but not quite the right fingerprint, then it assumes there's probably a smudge on the sensor and lets you in anyway. And that is where this new attack comes into play. The brute print attack involves prying your phone open and connecting an extra circuit board to the fingerprint sensor. The chip to do this can be had for about $15 and some soldering skill. If you know where to get it, and allows the attacker to send digitized fingerprint data from a computer directly into the fingerprint reader. Using a carefully crafted database of around 10,000 fingerprints, the brute force attack slowly widens the false acceptance rate until one of these fingerprints unlocks the phone. Of course, the phones also have other defenses against brute force attacks, such as rate limiting and auto lockout. Those are the main ones. The custom chip gets around the rate limiter by submitting guesses directly to the hardware rather than going through the phone UI where the delay is added. Researchers got around the auto lockout on every Android phone that they tested by manipulating the data using a couple of known vulnerabilities in the third-party fingerprint firmware found in basically every smartphone on the market, allowing them to unlock the phone in most cases in only a couple of hours. They weren't able to get around the auto lockout on the iPhones that they tested because Apple encrypts the data channel. But even with the lockout working, they were able to manipulate the reader enough to get in about 15% of the time before the lockout happened. The phones tested for this paper were all kind of older phones. The newest one was released in 2021 and had Android 11. Uh, The phones were the Xiaomi Mi 11 Ultra, Vivo X60 Pro, OnePlus 7 Pro, Oppo Reno Ace, Samsung Galaxy S10 Plus, OnePlus 5T, iPhone SE, and iPhone 7. However, while the OS has taken many updates since then, the researchers warn that the vulnerable fingerprint controller is still used even in the newest phones in the market. These controllers generally are not updatable via the vendor auto updates, which means if your phone is vulnerable, the only patch is to throw your phone away and buy a new one that isn't, if you can even find one. Although, I guess now that this vulnerability is out, that they might actually start trying to patch that. Does the average person have to worry about this attack? Maybe not. Not unless you're living in a spy novel. It seems like a lot of effort for a few passwords, stored credit cards, and a stash of porn selfies, but it's not nearly as much effort as you might think. If you're worried about your phone's fingerprint scanner being brute forced, the simple workaround is to stop using the fingerprint sensor for authentication. Go back to a pin code, still widely held by security people, as the most secure way of locking a phone. Or alternatively, you could use the method that I use. It's hard to steal my phone off a table when it's at home in a drawer. To each their own, I guess. From the Internet of Broken Things department. Yeah, yeah, another vulnerability story, but I haven't done a good Internet of Things story in a while and so what the heck. This one is about the Wemo Smart Plug V2. It's a little device that plugs into a wall outlet on the back and has another outlet on the front that lets you use your IoT network aka a smartphone app, to control anything you plug in by turning on and off the power. I guess you'd use this for lights, because I sure wouldn't plug my computer or alarm clock into it, but a lot of people are into that sort of thing. When you first plug in the WeMo, it identifies itself to your app as a nice computer-friendly name like Device cd 39 eafg 6312 or something, but the app does let you set uh, what it actually calls a friendly name. Uh, So you can set it to uh, living room lights or, uh, you know, kitchen fan or bathtub toaster or something. So you'll remember which appliance it's connected to. Researchers at security firm Sternum discovered that this friendly name field is not particularly well defended against attacks. What they found is that when you set a name, the text box in the app limits your input to 30 characters. But there's no bounds checking in the device itself. Meaning, when they wrote a custom program to replay the app to device protocol, they could set the friendly name to 31 characters, or to 50, or to a few hundred kilobytes. And now, anyone versed in security listening to this is cringing. See, I've just described what is called a buffer overflow attack. Once you can write arbitrary data into the memory of the device, you aren't limited to just writing friendly names, you can write over any other data, you can write over the code, you can just replace the code with your own operating system, the sky is the limit. The most likely scenario, now that this vulnerability is out there, is that somebody will immediately write a port scanner to scan for these WEMO devices on people's networks. Okay, correction, that's not the most likely. The most likely scenario is that somebody has already done this. Once you find a device connected to the internet, once the hacker does, it'll be easy enough to own the device, patching the vulnerability, of course, because you don't want someone else taking what you rightfully stole... And then add the device to your huge botnet of compromised Internet of Things devices ready to meet out a DDoS on an unsuspecting target as needed by someone on the dark web with plenty of cash and low morality. After reaching out to Belkin, who makes the Wemo devices, the company informed Sternum that the device is at end of life and will not be patched. So I guess if you've got a Wemo Smart Plug V2 in your home, then enjoy your botnet, because I know the hackers will. From the switching sides department, Tesla's proprietary supercharging standard just got a big boost. Uh, the standard that is used by Tesla they call NACS, and uh, it's they're the only ones for the most part who've been using it. And the standard used by pretty much every other automaker is called J one seven seven two or uh, CCS, which stands for Combined Charging System. Uh, the NACS stands for North American charging standard, which is not a standard at all because it's proprietary. It's owned by Tesla. We'll get to that. Um, And they're the only ones who use it. The NACS is uh, the protocol used by Tesla's superchargers. And frankly, if you know anything about charging EVs out on the highway, the supercharging uh, stations set up by Tesla are generally more reliable, deliver higher voltage. But like I said, they're proprietary. They're owned by Tesla. Well, Ford has announced that starting with the 2025 models of the Ford electric vehicles, they will now use the Tesla NACS and they will have access to Tesla's supercharging network. Uh, Further, they've announced that current Ford EV owners will get access to the supercharging network starting in 2024 via CCS to Tesla connectors. This is frankly really good for Ford and actually pretty good for anybody who owns a Ford EV. So uh, it's hard to knock the marketing on it. Uh, Ford is now going to be only the second company anywhere who can literally say you can charge at any te- charging station. Because before it was you can charge at any charging station that isn't Tesla because they like their own ball and their own playground. It's also great for Tesla. It means more supercharger customers, which means more ching for Tesla who operates all of the superchargers, um, and who knows how much Ford is paying to use Tesla's proprietary, patented, non-standard system. Tesla also gets more ammunition in their argument to make NACS the standard for everything. Now, a little bit of a soapbox. As a proponent of open and decentralized systems, this story bugs me. I don't like to see closed and patented technologies win out. Uh, Whenever closed technology becomes the standard and gets a monopoly, inevitably the people who own that closed technology become gatekeepers, charging premium rates to use the standards uh, and deciding who can and can't do it. And in today's woke world, that's even scarier because if, if you have one, any, as, as you should probably know, if you pay attention to social media, anyway, anywhere that there's one company deciding who can and can't be on the platform, they're the ones who get to impose their version of morality on you, which is, uh, not the same amongst everybody these days. Anyway, I watched this happen to DVD. The initial promise of DVDs was that the discs were so cheap to make movies would come down in price. But even in the bargain bin, you never, even in the day, saw a DVD below about $10. Why was that? Well, a big part of it was because $7 of every single DVD that was pressed went to royalties to the DVD patent holders. And somewhere between $35 and $50 of every player sold went to royalties to the DVD patent holders. Just so that you could use the standard. This, by the way, was why... If you wanted a cheap DVD player, you always got a foreign knockoff. They were the only ones who could be sold cheaply because they straight up weren't paying the royalties. I got out of the media software business right about the time that I started to watch the same thing happen to MPEG, but it's happened over and over again. But here's the problem. No matter how much I dislike seeing yet another patented technology becoming a standard, the fact is that the slightly more open and yet still patent encumbered CCS standard from Tesla or uh, the common standard ccs is really falling down you you here's the the scenario anybody who's ever tried to take a road trip with an ev you drive for miles and miles to find a charger and they're closed or they're not providing the advertised voltage or they're not working or you arrive at the station and there's only two chargers there and they're both occupied for the next 5 hours while they charge someone else's car and there's apps out there that try to get around these problems by tell you which ones are working, which ones are available, but they're not always that accurate. So, and then of course, many EVs don't have enough range to get to the next station. There aren't enough stations and unlike gas stations, there's not one every corner. So if you're in an EV and you hit this, you're stuck waiting or you're getting a tow or you, yeah, I mean, your, your car has let you down. Um, this is one of the main reasons why electric vehicles are straight up, not viable for road trips, at least in the United States. And it's hurting EV adoption, which is otherwise a very cool technology that's just harmed by some bad business practices and even worse legislation. But let's not get into that. Say what you will about Tesla. Their network is a hell of a lot more reliable than most of the one-off CCS stations. So I guess we'll find out where standards land. Maybe this is a prescient move on Ford's part. Maybe they're just seeing the winds change ahead of everybody else and picking who they're going to, which horse they're going to back. These kind of problems are the ones that every new technology has to work out naturally. And I have no doubt that in 10 years, all of these growing pains will be forgotten and the industry will arrive at an optimal solution. Or at least it would, if no nothing bureaucrats would stop using government force to legislate bad solutions. But that's a rant for another show. (laughs) From the Why Companies Should Test Updates Department, let's finish up with a brief murder mystery. This story was actually in my notes from last week, but somehow didn't make it in. So while it's old news, it's new to you. Am I right? On Wednesday, the 17th of May, the internet went down. Or at least it did for the owners of several models of Asus routers. The devices suddenly, quote, froze up for no reason. And uh, for two days, chat room rumors flew. Forum posters posted... But there was nothing but silence from Asus. What the heck happened? For two days. till finally, on the 19th, the company posted a terse notice to their website saying that the issue had been investigated and resolved, and if users could just reboot their routers one more time, everything should be fixed. The announcement blamed only, quote, an error in the configuration of our server settings file, standard operating procedure for a company that screwed up and doesn't want to admit fault. Fortunately, the internet being what it is, we have plenty of sleuths who don't work for ASUS willing to dig in and explain. One explanation I liked came from a uh, self-described Apple slash Linux slash Windows geek named Doug Brown, who blogged about trying to get his system back up. After he talked about a few failed connection attempts and many, many reboots trying to get his internet working and found, uh, quote, I was able to successfully SSH into the router at this time, and I did a few quick diagnostics. I used top to show me what was going on. I noticed that a process called ASD was taking up 50% of my CPU. The CPU is dual core, according to proc CPU info, so 50% likely means one core was fully pegged. My first instinct was to search for ASD, which was difficult with a non-working internet connection, but I found that it's an ASUS security daemon. This made me feel a little bit better, but I still felt like it had to be involved in the problem. So anyway, I did some checking on my own. Asus security damon is a value add product, kind of like a, an auto installed antivirus sort of thing that is designed to try to protect your Asus router from threats on the internet. Uh, it, uh, it tries to prevent things like sin floods. It tries to be, you know, it, it probably actually benefits. And it's certainly, uh, you know, a selling point that the company will push, uh, One of the things that it does is it downloads a configuration file from ASUS, from an ASUS website or internet site, FTP site or something. Um, The problem is that this download of the configuration file ignores the router configuration. In the router configuration, you have the ability to set it and say, I want automatic firmware updates on my router from ASUS. But even if you shut that off, your ASD is still downloading this config file. Uh, Asus Support, according to a Reddit user whose name I didn't write down, uh, Asus Support came back saying, well, this isn't an update. It's a configuration file, just like your virus definition files for your antivirus. Even if you don't take updates, you want your antivirus to be up to date, don't you? Well, I guess not always, because the config file that people downloaded on Wednesday morning was corrupted, or rather the routers downloaded causing the ASD to peg the CPU and completely fill up all RAM and storage with garbage data. Rebooting the router would clear that garbage data, but on boot, ASD would immediately go and fetch the corrupted file from ASUS again. So it only took a few minutes for it to fill up the storage and crash again. That few minutes is all the internet that you got in between reboots. Ultimately, the problem was only fixed when the company removed the bad configuration from their site I'll spare you the rant for this time about how automatic updates are dangerous and you really should be, okay, whatever. While researching this story, I did come across a marvelous open source project called Asus WRT-Merlin, which uh, I hadn't heard of because I don't have an Asus router. Uh, It's a third-party alternative firmware for Asus routers, which claims to fix most of the quality of life issues that seem to plague the brand. Among other features, the Merlin firmware does not phone home to Asus for configuration and updates, thus obviously didn't have this latest craft- crashing issue. So I guess the way I found out about it was reading Reddit threads and every single person who had installed Merlin firmware was gloating. I don't personally run any race Asus routers, but if I did, I'd definitely be checking alternate firmware about now. So anyway, angry thanks go out to Brian Janak, Robert Mueller, Sir Sean of the Allegheny Valley, the Reverend Cyber Trucker, Rachel Zimmerman and Christopher Reamer for their fiat support of angry tech news, uh, as well as, uh, Baron Spud, the mighty and Progo, whose names I always forget because they come in via a different channel. Um, yes, that did, it did, did have anyway. Uh, and thanks angry. Thanks to, uh, People who sent in streaming Satoshi boosts for uh, via a new podcast app at podcastapps.com. Booper of noses sent 6,000 sats. Uh NetNed sent 5,000 sats and said m on mRNA ads. Uh, Darren O sent 10,101 sats saying "fuck the Darren O'Neill in Dublin." If you want to know what the hell that's about, go listen to last show. It it was it was uh it was a show yeah anyway uh. Murray N sent 20,000 sats, saying, let's try this again. And Murray, I can confirm that your 20 K actually went through. So uh, apparently at least one of my myriad of channel issues has been solved. I'm pleased at that. Alex Gates sent a thousand sats with a fairly long note about one of the other routing issues to the nodes. Uh, Liquidity is definitely available. No idea what to do about it, except bug Adam or add other channels. Well, bug Adam is in fact what happened. We had a nice long thread that I hope ends up resolving yet another issue. And no pointer sent in thirty-three thirty-three saying no pointer tries to boost again. Thank you, everybody. Uh, This streaming Satoshi thing is starting to look like a real thing. It's starting to actually look like real money. And maybe that's because my... My view is being thrown off by the fact that the U.S. dollar is starting to look less and less like money when you go and I, I go and I'm like, I just need need of some barley refreshment and $35 for a 24 pack. What in the holy crap? At least it's not Bud Light. Anyway, Angry Tech News is produced on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors. We don't play ads and we do not charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. If you received some value from listening to this show, please send some value back go to angrytechnews.com and click the donate button. Send what this episode was worth to you, whether it's in dollars or in Satoshis. That's it for now. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the angry programmer with a mic. I'll be back next week with more angry tech news. This has been angry tech news with the angry programmer, Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay angry.